every day of that business was out there was for sale. Your business is an instrument to make you happy. You own it. It doesn't own you. Business people, they say they love their business. Bullshit. You can enjoy your business. Once you love it, you're losing your objectivity. And you can't let that business own you. You own it. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, Mr. Steal Your Pennies, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Paul Orphelia, the founder of Legendary Kinko's. Now, if you haven't heard of Kinko's before, it was hugely popular. It was the place where you went to do copiers, fax, and more in the late 90s. Paul ran the company for over 30 years, and at its peak, Kinko had more than 1,000 locations worldwide. Kinko's eventually got acquired by FedEx for $2.4 billion. Paul is an amazing entrepreneur, and he's very humble and doesn't like talking about how much money he makes. Spoiler alert, he's actually no longer even a billionaire because he donated a lot of his money to charities. If you've ever wanted to learn life lessons and experience of an entrepreneur that has been in the game for so many years, you are going to love this episode. In this conversation, you'll enjoy three gigantic things. One, how is a business and an instrument to make you happy? Two, how to live the best life in your 20s, 30s, and beyond. And three, how did Paul feel? And did he splurge or not once he sold the company? Enjoyed those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. This interview is part of an upcoming YouTube video where he interviewed 70-year-old billionaires who sold their companies and asking them whether it was worth it. Go subscribe to my YouTube channel to make sure you don't miss this video when it comes out. It's youtube.com slash Noah Kagan, N-O-A-H-K-A-G-A-N. Also, if you're looking to start or grow an online business, you need software tools at great prices to help you do that. Go to appsumo.com slash Noah, appsumo.com slash Noah. It's kind of like Groupon for Geeks or Groupon for Software. It has got the best software tools for solopreneurs out there. Go check it out. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Chief Stylist. That sounds just like a great person. Uh, they left reviews saying, actionable advice. Love the honesty of Noah's approach to entrepreneurship and the focus on actionable steps. You need to take action. Check this one out. My man, thank you for saying that. And thank you, every other one of you gorgeous listeners out there. If you want to shout out in a future episode, you know what to do. Leave a review wherever you listen to the show. I check every single one of them. What is your story in 30 seconds? Well, I was born in this room, exemplifies it. I was born as an albino monkey. I'm Lebanese, and everybody in my family is dark complected. And I come across blonde hair, blue eyed. And uh, my brother and sister picked up the fact that I didn't look like anybody. So, uh, they used to sing a song, M-O-N-K-E-Y. Why? Because you're a monkey. C-H-I-L-D. So my background is being a monkey. Being a monkey that sold a company for? Not enough money. Not enough money? Yeah, you never sold it for enough. I mean, $2.4 billion. I sold it to an LBO firm in uh, New York, Clayton Dubois and Rice, and then they sold it for $2.6 billion. And then did you own a part of that when they sold no, it? No, I, I kind of got out of it by then. I think if you sell your business, a piece of advice is leave right away because it's like cutting the tail off a dog an inch at a time. You're just there being tortured by having no authority but a lot of uh, aggravation. People, when you sell your business, they're more concerned with loyalty than performance. And they fired really good people, the new, new ones from New York. How much did you sell it for to the LBO? Oh, we sold it for maybe a billion and a half. How is it to become a billionaire? And I don't have that much now because I give it all away. I'm doing a good job of giving my money away. You know, there's so much need out there. I kind of feel guilt-ridden, hoarding and having a bunch of... And I've never been a possession freak. How did you make your money? I was a saver my whole life. I, I'm not a very good reader, and I had a lot of problems in school. And uh, I kind of figured out I'd have to do it with my savings account. Your children ought to be successful in either one of two ways. They had to be good in the school thing, whether a doctor, lawyer, or something with their education. Or they better be good with their money. And I was always saving my money and trying to figure out what to do with my money. So I was a saver. And, and you made the majority of your fortune through Kinko's? Well, yeah. I've made it other ways of making money, too. But I did that. Love to hear. Well, I've always invested in stocks, equities, and uh, real estate. I think when you start your career, you have all your money in your business. Then you get a little older, you have liquid instruments like uh, stocks and bonds. Because the best way to destroy your business is not turning money into cash, not paying your bills. Then you get a little older, you have a third in your business, a third in uh, equities or liquid instruments, a third in real estate. Then when you want to retire, it's paid off real estate, stocks and bonds. And if you want aggravation, you can still have employees. <laughs> How did you take Kinko's from one store? Like, how did you make it a billion-dollar business? Uh, we did, when I left, it was about $3 billion. 
How? People ask you that. When you're four years old, how did you get to be 20 years old and so tall? You just do it. <laughs> I mean, it just happened every day I'd go and I'd try to make it better. One of the things I've always approached my job as, things went beautifully without me. But whatever I did every day, I made it better. So if I didn't go to work, things ran. I had a system where it ran without me very well. Well, I think for you, it maybe comes a little more naturally. There's a lot of people out there that are like, I'd like to explore entrepreneurship. I'd like to make a billion dollars or I'd like to have freedom. And so I think it's more like, you know, to create your fortune, you, you found that there's this copiers and opening a bunch of stores for your copiers is a great way to make a fortune. Well, I think when you go to someone's soul, the question is, do you like to do everything yourself? And you can you put up with the vagaries of human beings. Do you want to eat your alphabet soup alphabetically? I wouldn't try to get an employee. I was always comfortable with ambiguity. Go on. Everything I dealt with in my business was an ambiguous decision. If you pay people a little bit too much, or do you pay them enough with the marginal benefit of a little bit more for health insurance, how much benefit do I get out of that? I think it goes back to microeconomics. And we don't understand. You make decisions on the margins. And that's all the executive or the owner does, is make marginal decisions. And you make marginal decisions every day. If you drive in the freeway at 65, your chance of getting a ticket is zero. If you go at 90, you're going to get a higher probability. We make marginal decisions instinctively every day, but we don't think about it. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I guess, well, I'm still with the Kinko's thing. Like, what was your expectation from the beginning? For example, like when I started my company, I didn't, I just wanted to make a few thousand dollars and be able to live and work the way I wanted. Oh, when I started, I was in there for the money. And it was always for sale. It just, I sold it in 1997. But every day of that business was out there, it was for sale. Your business is an instrument to make you happy. You own it, it doesn't own you. It's a fundamental thing I think a lot of businesses do is they, business people, they say they love their business. Bullshit. You can enjoy your business. Once you love it, you're losing your objectivity. And you can't let that business own you. You own it. So my father sold copiers growing up. So we were like, you know, Rabbit? Yeah. Yeah. He had a competitor of Rabbit. So I, as a kid, would always go to different stores and definitely was around fex, like facsimile boards. Mm -hmm. Remember those back in the day? Yeah. But I guess, how did you distinguish like Kinko's to become a billion-dollar business? Like, there was a lot of other people competing against that. Well, every day, out thinking, out experimenting, out trying. My marginal cost was 17 cents. I sold for a dollar. I was throwing loose nickels at things. But what happens when you get a bigger business with like 25,000 employees, they become very defensive. And they do these stupid things called reviews, and it becomes very punitive. And uh I try to instill risk-taking more and more in the culture, but it's, it's hard when you get kind of uh, executive-itis in there. <laughs> well, we're, what was the top revenue year you had while you were running the company? Last year, I was there. Three billion. In paper sales? In like copies and prints and posters? Stationery, film processing. What were some of the experiments you, you enjoyed that worked or didn't work? I'll start with, I never gave myself too much to do. And I was wandering constantly in every store. My job was going store to store looking for what people are doing right. For an example, we went to San Diego. They took 12 pictures and put them on a calendar, a color copier. We sold for $30 in December, and December is a lousy month. That was a great discovery. We exploited the calendars throughout the country. One day, when I first started, I was in the reserve book room on a university. And most people don't know what a reserve book room is anymore. but it's where a professor leaves things on file at the reserve book room and expects you to read it for the test. Well, most people go the night before the test to get the book, and it's not there. And uh, I told the professors they could leave things on file with us as well as the reserve book room. And the professors went nuts for the program. We expanded it to all 50 states, and we were doing, say, 6 or 7% of the textbooks at Ohio State. I guess I'm trying to think, of, do you think anyone could become a billionaire? Most people will brag about that bullshit. I think you just underplay it. I, I don't disagree. My dad made women's clothes. And uh, my dad would say, uh, if business is good, complain. If business is bad, boast. So uh, I've always been leery of the boasters. If you're boasting and you have all these look-at-me cars and all that bullshit, people are envious. They're not really proud of you. They're happy for your success. They're a lot of times very envious. And you don't want to, as a, a matter of intimacy, Set yourself up as for jealousy in the Jewish culture and the Arabic culture. They have the evil eye. You don't want to set up the evil eye. 
how did you feel people reacted or how did you feel when you, when that sale happened? I felt great. I got off my financial, all my financial problems. Tell you a funny story. My wife over here bought a ex-wife, bought a TV cabinet for $35,000 and it always pissed me off. That cabinet was so goddamn expensive. I was very upset with the cabinet. I was on hawk to the banks. I had debt, 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 debt. Sold the business. I'm happy with the cabinet. <laughs> so you actually felt relief. Oh, fuck yeah. Yes. You know, when you're younger, responsibility is kind of cool. Then there's a thing called burden. There's a fine line. Responsibility is <laughs> kind of cool. Then you get older, it becomes a burden. I got to that point when I'm in my late 40s. I just didn't enjoy all the responsibility. You know, people, when they go to work with you, you're sort of responsible for them. And you want to make sure they have health care and pension. And you care about your people. The caring just got to me too much. Like I remember going to San Antonio and a woman had four kids. She's single. And she was working in the store. And I kept thinking, how does she have any sanity? So those are the kind of things that got to me. But it sounds like selling made it made your life a lot easier. Oh, yeah. I think uh, liquidity and makes life a little bit easier. I had 30 years of business where I was worried about paying my bills, and I got real tired of it. I'm kind of surprised. Because, like, Kinko's is selling $3 billion a year. No, we expanded every year with internal money. I never took outside money. And uh, we were subchapter S, and I was always expanding with our internal capital. I never liked the group investors. I just don't trust them. You know what an investor is? These venture capitalists? They're like a hitchhiker you pick up the next thing you know you need you run out of gas or you need something and they take over the car <laughs> do you wish you you worked less no i worked enough i didn't i actually uh that's a good question i worry if hard work is worrying i was a hard worker but at putting many many hours at work i wasn't there i was always wandering and worrying that was my job. Was it worth it, all the work and the worrying? Now, in my 40s, I didn't sleep right. My neck always hurt, and I had bad gas. <laughs> now, I don't have any gas. I sleep like a baby, and my neck doesn't hurt. Stress causes a little bit of problems. What regrets do you have from that time? Well, I was under so much pressure financially. I didn't say enough thank yous. I worked with really wonderful people, and uh, I didn't say thank you enough to them. Dan and Cece, I they're the president of the company, and CC works very closely with me in my personal life. But I never really thanked him enough. What did you say to him? I should say thank you, but at the time I was not, you know, when you're in the middle of it all, it's just hard to be grateful. You're just so, have so much pressure. You're just like, hey, we're focused on the work. Here's the things we got, problems we got. No, I, I was just internally focused on paying my bills and all that. And I, I was jovial and very convivial to the managers. Managers, man, they, they did like me. Everything I did was to please the managers at the store. But the executives, they could feel my fury a little bit. I guess with that being the case, was it all worth it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I had two choices in life. I could have been right here where I am now, or I would have been the homeless. There was no place in the middle for a guy like me. Why? Well, I can't read very well. I flunked second grade, and I had the blue paddle. I mean, she paddled the hell out of me. In third grade, I had to go to school with uh, in Hollywood. Eight kids in the class. Two were 18 years old. I kept thinking, like, why? I'm eight years old. Why am I at school like this? I had to go to an eye doctor three days a week. And finally, my, I learned how to read. My parents said every word I ever read cost them $50. And I graduated from high school, eighth in the bottom of my class at 1,200. And the United States draft is the reason I'm a college graduate. Plus, I wanted to go to college. It was a great place to grow up. So I graduated. What advice do you have for someone who's starting out that wants to be an entrepreneur? I was thinking about that. Well, go to your soul and see if you really want it, because there's a, there's a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of uncertainty. Maybe you're better off just having a job. But you got to go to your rubber ducky in your bathtub and say, do I really want this aggravation? It really is a lot of sleepless nights. And how well do you deal with ambiguity? And you found out that you enjoyed it? I had no choice. Oh, it would have been nice if I didn't have so much uncertainty. But it would have been nice if you just went there and it just worked real well like a machine. It didn't. That's always interesting in business because I think from the outside we think it does. 
Like when you watch someone's business, you're like, oh, it must be just perfect. No, 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 no. Business is an art form. If Da Vinci came back and said, wow, man, I think I could have done some more pink in that picture, or a little more blue. They're artists. It's always can be done better. Then you're never done. It's never perfect. It can always be improved. What was your first job? What was the first like business you started in the first job you had? Uh, I uh, went to the market and bought some strawberries and sold them door-to-door, about nine years old. I just bought them at the retail store and sold them. I was doing door-to-door stuff. I was like hustling. That's my favorite. If anything, I like the best of sales. How did you learn sales? I don't know. You just do it. You sell newspapers. You just, I sold, you know, the Easter seals or the Christmas stamps. I used to hustle those in grade school. It just came easy to me. I don't know how. I just sold. You know, you sold Kinko's for a billion and a half. You don't like when I say that, do you? My mother and father would shake in their boots if they ever knew I was braggadocious about something like that. I guess I've always thought, though, like, what's the line between braggadocious and, like, being proud of what you accomplished? Like, I think braggadocious is like, I made all this money and look at all these things. And because I think for myself, I feel similar where I'm self conscious about it, but probably a fine line between pride and arrogance. You're right. I'm superstitious about taking myself seriously. And when I do, I always get my ass kicked. And you get, you know, an investment. You think your shit doesn't stink. That's when you get your ass kicked. When did that happen? Oh, one day I had a good back to school in January. And I had the money I needed to get me through the summer. And I'm driving back from L.A. I live in Santa Barbara. And uh, thinking to myself, God, I'm doing really well. My shit doesn't stink. The next day, the entire publishing industry in the United States of America sued me. And I thought, man, the next time you take yourself seriously, you better not. I thought it was just such a coincidence. Just one time? No, just a lot. (laughs) Every time it's too good to be true, I get my ass kicked. Buying real estate, I bought a farm. It just, it just always happens. What's the farm story? I bought some farm avocado thing up here. I could not manage a damn avocado orchard. <laughs> and the people came in and stole all my avocados. I couldn't do. Ch- it was a horrible thing. And I, yeah, I had no business in that business. How much was the farm? Oh, at the time, it was about three million dollars. And then what did you end up selling it for? About three million. Uh, yeah, not so bad. But it was that lot of aggravation. I think the part that you're saying that I, I resonate with is being mindful of your, um, it's not bravado, but having the balance of humility to being a beginner or being able to experiment and wonder and not thinking that we are so great. And it, it's also good to be, have some confidence, though, in what you're also doing. Well, way down deep, you and my soul, back when I started, I wasn't too confident. I was always insecure and I was always paranoid about the guy across the street wiping me out. The people I worked with were in the business. And they loved it. I was always across the street looking in. That was my vantage point. And I knew every strategic weakness we had. And that's where I spent my time. Fixing those weaknesses or removing them? Just understanding them. Fantasizing what a competitor would do to kick my ass. Do you understand competition is out there to kick your ass? What did you do against competition? Not smart. Not thought of them. You have to. You remember in microeconomics, the definition of pure competition? It was easy entry and exit from the market. A homogeneous product, and price is the reason you bought. Well, when I started, the government up the street had a better contract for the Xerox machine. They had subsidized labor and free rent. Now, how am I going to compete? A copy is a copy. It's white paper on a bunch of crud. How do I compete with this? So uh, I had to outsmart the school. Uh, We looked longer hours, gave great customer service, had synergistic products like binding and stationery with the uh, copying. I mean, I, I grew up on Kinko's. That was awesome. Which store? Uh, San Jose. There's also, there's one in, I mean, in Austin, we have FedEx Kinko's. San Jose, we had good stores. Those are really good stores in Austin. What makes it a good store? I spent all my time in the good stores understanding why. That's interesting. I didn't go to the bad stores because you have executives to worry about the bottom 10%. But I was always studying why someone was successful. We had two stores in Houston, had bad parking, both of them. They were so successful. What made a good store was the manager, the morale of the manager. And I could take a good manager and put him in a bad store and become a good store. I could take a bad manager and put him in a good store and become a bad store. What made a good manager? It's a kind of an ethereal quality. I could tell when I walked in the stores, I could see it in the eyes of the workers. I could just tell if I'm going to have a good visit or a bad visit. And then also I'd look in the little subtext. God damn it, I got so many issues. I have that business. I was fighting them all the time. 
You'd walk in the store. I understood what it was like from the window looking in. That's my dad's vantage point, my vantage point. So you'd go to the front door, and I'd travel with a bunch of senior people, and I'd have them stop at the front door, and I'd say, now, what is your sense of neatness and proportionality here? Then I'd contrast that to the cash register looking out. From the cash register looking out, we were the most neat, organized business on earth, but from the front door in, we weren't. I had a big battle with the field over that one. We were an operating company that happened to sell, and I wanted to convert us to a selling company that operated. And uh, that was part of my frustrations. I knew every one of my weaknesses. How many other businesses have you started? Because I think that's one thing that people miss out on. I did coffee shops, espresso cappuccino before Starbucks. I was going to try to put them co-located with us next to Kinko's. And then we did a 24-hour dry cleaners. Now, wouldn't you go to a dry cleaners where they spoke English and open 24 hours a day? So I wanted to open up these strip centers where you had 24-hour businesses. Have you ever been to Berkeley? You've been yeah, to Berkeley. I went to college. Do you know Top Dog? Yeah. What did you notice in Top Dog? Small grills close. Did you notice how many people were in line? It's always crowded. That might be an indication of success. So I tried to knock off Top Dog here in Santa Barbara. I screwed up because we did it in the middle of Skid Row. I did data mining businesses. I did, shit, I did so many businesses. A lot of them failed. What are some of the other ones that didn't work or did work? Just trying to think of them all. I'm always throwing a loose nickel at something. Most of the time, if it's a good person, you will invest with them. If you had to describe how people should live their lives in decades, how would you think about that? My mother said, honey, in your 20s, try everything. In your 30s, figure out what you do best. In your 40s, make money from what you do best and try not to do too much in your 50s. And then another thing about your life is when you're in your 20s, you really do care what people think about you. You get to be 40, you don't really care what people think about you. Then you get to be 60, you realize no one ever thought of you in the first place. I feel like you would have succeeded no matter what. And I guess it depends on how you define success, too. No, I don't think so. I was lucky. Luck has more to do with life than we might think. What are some of the luck that you had? Oh, I opened the first location. It was a garage, and it happened to be in the main artery of the campus. When I lost the lawsuit with the publishers, they had an injunction that I was able to stay in business. Uh, they liked us. One time I was lucky. This sounds really weird, but I was in the top uh, 12-story building, and I was dropping Coke bottles on a Sunday uh, down to see how they crashed. There's nobody was walking to the streets and say, and something held my hand. And right then, an old lady walked by. I would have killed her. Something held my hand. You don't call that luck. I think there's a, an interesting balance of life where there is luck of timing and things that happen, but there's also all the, the worry and the wonder and the effort that you did put in. And I think the thing that I always try to encourage other entrepreneurs too, it's like hearing from you, you tried a lot of things and one worked out exceptionally well. Yeah, right. You see all these big shots, they think that uh, they built the business. Their customers built your business. How well you can read a customer. And I remember President Obama gave a great speech. It was a bunch of business people. I said, hey, by the way, you think you built this business, Mr. Business Person? Didn't government pay for the education of human beings? Didn't we provide good roads? Didn't we have a way for you to have uh, systems of shipping things? And you think you built that business? Was government a partner for you? It was a great speech. I'm going to come back on this. So you sold your company for some number that we're not going to talk about. How have you enjoyed the money? Oh, it's easy. Oh, you don't understand the luxury of waking up every morning and not worrying and thinking about what you want to think about. Like wake up every day with a clean slate of something I didn't have to do yesterday or worry about yesterday's problems. You can't talk about tenses. You have an organization. The owners are in the future, managers are in the present, and accountants are in the past. It's interesting to be in the future and worried about stuff tomorrow. I like that a lot. What are ways that you got to enjoy the money? I guess part of the question is, there, like, is it worth it to try to work my ass off to make a billion dollars? And Is that the life that people should be living? Is that a blueprint? No, nah, because I'm just bullshit, a billion dollars. Sooner or later, you're going to wake up with yourself and figure it out. It comes from within. And uh, what's really sad is you wake up with all that bullshit in you, the same miserable person you started with. You look at these movie stars. They say to themselves, God, I got everything. It makes me happy. How come I'm still a miserable movie star? And I'm being smug about it. I've got enough money to live a comfortable life. And I take that for granted. You think so? Well, I'm going to be smug about it. 
<laughs> what are some of the silly ways you've spent your money or, or f- most fun or weirdest ways that you've enjoyed or some of money? Like, I mean, you have a tank in your backyard. I'll have a tank and a police car. But that police car out there cost me $5,500 and the tank cost me 8000 I'm proud of it. I got a good deal on it. I bought this goddamn airplane to be a big shot. <laughs> and that thing cost me more than the airplane because to be a big shot, I had to have projects around the country flying constantly to, you know, justify a big shot airplane. Now that, that cost me a lot of money. More than the airplane. A lot more being a big shot. And uh, I did a lot of real estate developments I shouldn't have gotten into. I started uh, investing in equities, buying portions of companies I shouldn't have been doing. How would you have done that over? I would have uh, been contented with just buying good old stocks and bonds. <laughs> Being contented with the income property you have. What was the plane? Or how much was the plane that you bought? Oh, the plane was $22 million. Do you want to hear a good story about that plane? Yeah, of course. That's yeah, so interesting. These big damn companies are stupid. If you know their accounting procedures, you can take big time advantage of them. I'm going to get back to the airplane, but I used to go to Xerox, and I'd say, oh, Xerox, you've got this fantastic new machine. I want to buy 400 of them, and I'll pay you the list price. I'll pay whatever you want, but all I want you to do is extend the service contract for four years. What's a machine? A machine is just a damn bunch of metal. All I want to do is get the copies at the end I can sell. So uh, they would sell me these machines. And I get four years, 24 hours of free parts and maintenance. And I blast those things 24 hours a day. So uh, with the airplane, this is during the recession when uh, the bad Bush wanted to get reelected. The warmongering bad Bush. He had in 2004 50% depreciation. So if you bought something, you got to write off 50% of it. So I went to the airplane company. I said, hey, you know, by the way, I'll pay your list price. Just give me four years or three years of free service. Well, an airplane cost $300 an hour for parts and tires and all that, or $400 an hour. I blasted the hell. I had to pay for gasoline, and I had a chartering business, so I made some good money in the chartering business. That's why I bought the airplane. Also, I was on the airplane a lot being a big shot, which cost a lot of money. Do you still have the plane? No. No, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm sort of like done with hotel rooms. You get tired of going to the bathroom and end up going to a closet in the middle of the night. I just got tired of it. This question might sound strange, but are you happy today? Oh, yeah. Happy as ever been. Yeah. You work out your demons as you get older. But now I've accepted myself. I think anxiety and ambition are the best of friends. The anxiety sometimes overwhelms you. It makes you sort of introspective and insecure. And I was rejected a lot in school. I couldn't read. Oh, I had bad zits here. I don't think the girls particularly like me. And so you come from that background as a kid, and you still have that with you. You know what's interesting? You always have the 13-year-old and the adult, and they're always fighting. The 13-year-old is vulnerable, insecure, and the adult is always fighting with that 13-year-old, no matter what you do in life. And finally, after a period of time, you get older, you know how to put the 13-year-old in its proper place. I think about that a lot, just about accepting ourselves. Like just accepting whatever way it is across the board for everyone. It's hard. It comes with time and age. And then you're not married and you're not children yet. After you've raised your children, it's a lot easier because you know you've done the sperm bank thing. <laughs> Coming back on the plane, because I, I do think there's also some interesting pieces there. What other things that you maybe didn't spend money well on? Liquor. <laughs> I drank too much. Uh, I can't think of being a big spender. Who, who was there for you? You know what a friend is? A friend is somebody who's happy when you're happy. And my parents were always in my corner. And I had uncles and aunts that I knew they were always in my corner. So I think your family. Well, it's finding people that are in the corner. But how many people can you call when something really cool happens so they share your joy? If it was so anxiety, why did you try to grow so big? Why not just like keep it small and humble and like, well, that's about your nature. You're miserable and you're still growing. Men more than women get too much of their identity from their career. And I think your business is, once again, an instrument to make you happy. You own it. It doesn't own you. Yeah, I just, I guess I wonder why not just slow the business down and, and have No, 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 you couldn't do that. You got to keep it growing. You got to keep it going. I mean, 
There's zones I found in retail. Seven stores were difficult. 25 stores were difficult. 200 were difficult. 800 was difficult. But you have to build your overhead before you can expand. An example would be in cities, you see a 20,000-person city, 50,000, 100,000, but they kind of grow in between real quick. So we were always going from uncomfortable zone to uncomfortable zone because you got to catch up to your overhead. I think one of the things I've noticed in business for myself and others is like, how much is enough? And like, there's this, this chase for more. Chase I know, I know. It's, it's never enough. It's just a game, isn't it? It's just a game. When's enough enough? When does Tom Brady say I've had enough of football? Well, I think when Giselle leaves in this year. Yeah, that's probably the last year. What are some of your memorable moments for you uh, during the Kinko's run? My best memories of my life. Kinko's isn't one of them. I just remember always being stressed out and worrying. And there's a lot more to worry in when you have your business. And so I was ready for it to be sold long prior to when I sold it. Did you need to worry as much? Like, would you have been as successful if you didn't do as much worrying? I don't know. You see, I had a lot of time in my hands. I never gave myself too many things I had to do. So I was always wandering, looking at what people were doing right, studying it. But in the middle of the night, those bills were always there. And I was always trying to expand faster. I had money in the checkbook. That was a problem. What would you say is a top memory? When I sold the business, that was the best night. We looked at the cabinet. I thought, oh, God, I like this cabinet now. How was it when you received the money that day? Like, what happens? Like, oh, it's just, oh, it's just euphoric. All the burdens of the world just left. How did that day go? Can you walk me through that day? Oh, I took a walk, and I was just, like, joyous. And it was just like, oh, I could breathe again. But how'd you celebrate? I forgot. I probably had a few cocktails. <laughs> Maybe spoke to join or two. <laughs> was it in New York? No, I sold it when I was in California. I've always lived in California. Santa Barbara. It's a nice place. Solving is like my favorite place on earth. Yeah, I like it here. This is one of the better places I've ever been. I've been here 55, 50 years. Great place to raise your children. It's funny because I was going to ask what's the lowest moments of Kingo's, but I feel like there's, you've had a lot. <laughs> yes, what are some of the lowest, mo lower moments? When I got sued by the publishers was the lowest. And then they got the injunction against me. That was a low moment. What was the injunction against? Injunction was we got annihilated. I knew I was going to get sued by the publisher sooner or later. We wanted them in the Ninth Circuit because they considered Californians in the courthouse like more like carefree. The Second Circuit is New York. And I never wanted to give the damn publisher's jurisdiction to the Second Circuit. But we had that publishing program and we did it in the Second Circuit. And they got me in their backyard. And the judge just, he just gave us a verdict. It was and an injunction that she told the publishers, you can write the injunction. And, uh, you know, you remember a guy named Jim Lair? He saved my business. You remember McNeil Lair report on TV? What happened? Well, he, it sounds like a break. I was at the White House getting an award for being a lousy student. And Jim Lair was there waiting to see the president. And I went up to him. I said, you know, I really like your TV show about your heart attack and the pastrami sandwiches. And he said, you know, that's of all the things I've done on TV, that's the one people remember the most. So years later, I got the publishing the publishers sued me, and they invited me to be given an address to all the textbook manufacturers. And Jim Lair was there the night before, giving the keynote, and he gave a plug for us. And that's what I think saved my business. And the next day, I gave a speech saying, I'm so sorry, forgive me. I didn't know that Maricopa, Maricopa, Maricopa. And they wrote an injunction, I could stay in business. But it did have criminal sanctions. If we screwed up again, I could have gone to jail. So, What were they saying you were doing, like copying textbooks? or You know, let's say a teacher wanted a little bit of this book, this book, this book. It was called anthologies. Like in the case of New York, we tried to argue that one-third of Doris Kearns' Goodwin book was fair use, which was like that is legitimate taking of a book, a copyright. We obviously lost that. What do most people not know when you become very wealthy? They ask you for charity or bug you a lot. My favorite is, do you care about the poor people, the starving people in Ethiopia? Like, what are you going to say? No, I don't care about them or I care. About them. I don't have the money for them. I can't cure that problem. So uh, that's some of the stuff you get. Do you mind if I talk to you about a business opportunity? So I'm pretty good at getting out of those conversations. But I think it's a lot of nerve to ask me for charity. Some of these wealthy folks here ask me for charity. 
I think, come on, you've got to give your own money. And I have my own pet causes. What are they? In California, we have this horrible way of funding public schools. That The fancy one that is in my neighborhood gets $37,000 per student per year. Two miles away is a school in a more impoverished area. They get $10,500 a year. Tell me that is in any way fair. So we try to equalize the poorer schools. We have an orthodontia program where we uh, help fix the children's teeth. It seems to me that if you have quality uh, orthodontia, you can have happier life, better incar- less incarceration, better college graduation. So uh, that's one of my pet projects. I think maybe if I, before I die, I'd like to make sure every child has a pathway to orthodontia, especially in the superficial California where you are gauged by your smile. Yeah. How did you raise your kids with money? Like, how did you? That's a good question. Yeah. How did I teach my kids money skills? Yeah. Okay. When they were six years old or five years old, I'd give them $5 a week. And they had to keep a log. $3 for spending, a dollar for giving, and a dollar for savings. So if they would go, like, to some place and they'd say, Dad, will you buy me the Coca-Cola? I'd say, yeah, you got your own money. Why don't you buy yourself one? They'd say, oh, no, 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 I can't afford that. <laughs> my wife was, ex-wife was into the school thing, which I wasn't. They knew that I was about saving the money and what to do with your money as a child. They would do a lemonade stand over here. A lot of people do lemonade stands in front of their house. They're stupid. I put it right in front of the supermarket. We sold $200. I sold so many damn cookies and lemonade. I just went inside and bought the lemonade from the market. <laughs> and uh, i take them right away to the bank. Now, when they were eight years old, I had them wear a suit and tie and see a stockbroker. And I left the room. My kids, fortunately, have good money skills. I think it's very important. And a lot of parents aren't doing the thing about money skills. They're letting the stupid grade, the schools dictate their children's happiness. A hundred percent. Like I was raised very similarly where it was like, we're going to get you a bank account. We're going to talk about money. And it's just, it's shocking how many people have no clue. And I don't think they're street smart. Like you're on the streets of LA. I was raised in the middle of LA. You can understand street smarts of money. One thing I was was curious is like, how do you think, did legacy impact your decision-making in your career? Like how you thought you wanted to be remembered. No, I didn't care about that. Never crossed my mind. They're not going to remember you anyway, 100 years from now. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes it's like, we're probably not, none of us are going to be remembered. No, I don't think that's what you live for. I and mean, then you think of it, all the universe and how insignificant we are in the universe. I think about that sometimes. What do you think? What was it like before I was born? And uh, before I was born, was there a God? Where was I? And then where am I going to be after I'm dead? I hope there's somebody to go to, but I think about that a lot, what infinity is. Now, infinity could be one second. In between, one second is infinite. So you could have infinity of happiness or being with God in just one second. I've been thinking about that lately. I really admire people with a strong faith because it is a big comfort. I get, what do you want to happen or what do you think happens? I'd like to go to financial heaven, but... Uh, <laughs> and so if you get... If you have a billion, do you get to go to a, like an express heaven? That'd be nice. You know what? Christ said once that it's harder for a wealthy person to go to heaven than it is for a camel to fit in the eye of a needle. So uh, when I look at these fancy churches, I don't think Christ was in the fancy churches. I think he was more like a down home, hang loose, I'm a forgiving type person. I just don't recognize Christ and how the religious right view his presence. I mean, I just don't get it. Christ was a hang-loose, forgiving person. I don't know how he got to damnation. It's so selfish. It seems like he would be an accepting person. How do you think someone today can become a millionaire? If that's something that, that's what they're interested in. Just use your eyes. Use your eyes and your intuition. But unfortunately, we're too damn rational. A lot of times it's intuitive. Why does a customer want to buy something? And uh, a lot of people aren't cut out for their own business. My biggest problem at Kinko's we had two or three workers in a store, and the leader of that store knew everything about things. I left a business with 40, 50 workers in the location. The leader of that business knew a lot about people, not things. And some people feel comfortable managing things, and some people feel comfortable managing people. If you're a thing person, don't try to be a, a people person. And it reminds me of the Maytag repair person. Their spouse would say, why don't you Become promoted, manage the other uh, repair people, and they have a nervous breakdown. Some people aren't cut out for it.
I do office hours on YouTube for free. I'll do like uh, once a month. And someone asked my mom like showing up and they asked her, they said, do you think everyone should be an entrepreneur? And, she, and it was the first time I'd realized like people shouldn't actually be it. Like it's really not forever. Like there's some people with like honestly being an employee or working for someone else is actually a great thing. Yeah. I guess I always assume that everyone should have a chance at least if they want to do it. I took a course at Harvard for three years and then they uh, talk about like-mindedness. Entrepreneurs think everybody's like them, but they aren't. People like predictability, which I would have been nice in my career. <laughs> how do you use curiosity to come up with business ideas and how did that help you come up with Kinko's? Oh, I was at SC and they were in line at SC making Xerox copies. And I figured, why wouldn't the same people be in line in Santa Barbara? So wasn't that complicated? They're in line here, they're in line here. I didn't have to take a lot of LSD and ruminate over the damn idea. What are you observing in terms of business ideas in today's economy? Oh, there's so many. But the kids are too highfalutin. They want to do all these highfalutin things. It's just down and dirty stuff. Like every time you park your car, why isn't somebody washing it for you? Why don't you go to the place and say, I'll open a car wash for you. Charge you $40, you go to lunch, two hours later you get a car wash. I mean, why, what's, hap what's happening to all that little hustle? So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a hustler. I like to sell and I like to get down and dirty. One thing I noticed with you in business and just in how you live your life, it seems like you, you like to inject fun. Also, what I admire is you talk about work-life balance, as well as having fun with what you're working on, not just like it ha always has to be a grind. Oh, yeah. Because to be successful, you have to have three things in balance, work, love, and play. And it's a tripod. If you work too hard, your tripod's screwed up. You have to have a balance. And I really did strive for a balance. I really enjoyed my children. I played a lot with them. And uh, I didn't worry when I was supposed to worry at night. But I, when I was there, I was there with my family. How did you inject fun into Kinko's? Oh, it's very important in the culture, alcohol. <laughs> no, because people loosen their lips in alcohol. And uh, we would have a company picnic. We would fly people throughout the country to come into the picnic. And the theologians of the business wanted to make it a convention. Bullshit. It's a picnic, a celebration. Every anthropological organization has a pig roasting. They do something to celebrate once a year. And so it was just a celebration. And uh, also, liquor is a great way to have intimacy and fun in a business. That was something you used in interviews, you said? For, jo for job interviews? Oh, yeah. I would always interview somebody. He's taking a dinner. I'd like to see what they were like when they, when they had a few drinks. In Latin, they call it in vito veritas. In wine, there is truth. What other traditions did you have at Kinko's? Oh, you have to have traditions. We would celebrate anniversaries, celebrate a lot of things. And the guy I worked with, Dan Fredrickson, was really good about giving recognition. I wasn't that good at it. One of my Machiavellian sayings was, give the glory, keep the money. People do a lot for glory, for recognition. <laughs> tell, hold on, tell me more of this. Give the glory. Keep the money. Look at the military. They give you a stupid little feather and you can't wait to go out and attack a machine gun. But you couldn't offer anybody $50 billion to attack a machine gun. And how did you give glory at Kinko's? Oh, a lot of recognition. Pins and uh, memorabilia and plaques and all that. Very important in the culture of a business. People really want to be recognized. You also don't seem like you've, in my impression, you don't follow a lot of rules or you don't want to be a part of rules as much. I hate the rules. Yeah, so you had a human rules team, or I guess... Like HR, that was a thing that got to be so big. It ended up taking so many desks. And I never understood what the hell that we needed HR for. And one time they came to a group of us, like a board meeting, and maybe there were 20 people in the room. And the HR department came in and said, oh, we had zero lawsuits last year from the HR, like firing people and stuff. And everybody's going, oh, that's really good, that's really good. And I said, bullshit. I want to predict a bunch of lawsuits. That means you're keeping a bunch of deadbeats in these stores. I don't want a zero <laughs> lawsuits. <laughs> Most businesses, they have edicts, and you don't allow ambiguity. It's, I want a few lawsuits. It tells me that we're sticking our neck out enough. Did you guys get some lawsuits? I don't remember. One of the things I regret in the old business is candor. We all got along so well. And I don't think we were as candid as we should have been with each other. Just more direct. I wasn't, but the people I worked with seemed too finesseful and too want to be liked rather than candid. At the peak, how many people were working there? 25,000. How's that for you? Responsible. I, I smoked a lot of pot in college, and I went and saw my finance professor, and I said, oh, you know, all you do is make money and make a bunch of bullshit for yourself, and it just seems 
And he gave me that look like, uh, you won't understand the responsibility you have when you have your own business. It is so damn true. People really rely on you and your representations. You want to shake someone's hand and honor your commitments. I had a CEO running my company and makes a lot of money. And I'm like, this guy just sits around and does nothing. That's what I thought. And then he quit last year and I, I stepped in to be CEO again. And I was like, this guy's job is hard. I definitely underappreciated uh, what he was responsible for. Everything is easy to the person who doesn't have to do it. They still tell me that all the time at work. You don't have to do it. How come it's so easy for you? Yeah. What were some of the memorable customer stories or people you worked with stories across the, either that 25,000 or across the millions of people that, that shopped at Kinko's? My favorite story is I went to the Hawaii store. The lady I worked there just drove me out of my mind. And she had an affair with a guy at the downtown store. And the guy at downtown got, they broke up and he got fired. And he moved to New Mexico. And uh, he works in a copy shop. And he has an affair with the wife of the owner. And they conspire to murder the father, husband. She buys a knife and put it on her visa card. So he comes out of the bushes in the park, kills the guy, knives himself in the groin. And the woman from Hawaii calls me up and says, David's been in some trouble in Albuquerque. Can you help him out? Murder one, I'm going to help out this guy? That was my favorite story. That's wild. You didn't help him, right, bud? No, I didn't help him. Oh, shit. No, I didn't like it. Right? I didn't like <laughs> one thing I'm noticing is that people, you know, there's this, this um, pattern of life. Like, you work hard. You, if you're an entrepreneur or not, you can make a lot of money. And then there's, like, the giving period. Like when I'm you, giving away all my money. Yep. Yeah, how do you... Okay, so do you remember the movie Brewster's Million? It's with Eddie Murphy. He's got one day to spend a million bucks or $30 million, but he can't have anything to show. How do you spend all that money? Like, how do you give it away? Like, how do you even think about it? Oh, that's so easy. There's so many charities that are worthwhile. I get involved with elementary schools. 50% of the Latinos in my community don't know how to swim. That's a sin. They can go through grade school and not know how to swim. They don't know how to ride a bike. Imagine, you graduate from high school, you have no clue of financial management. They eat garbage. They don't have a good appreciation of nutrition. They don't have conflict resolution in school. Are you going to get married? You're going to have a conflict. You think you might take a course in it? You should have a parenting course in school, but yet the Pythagorean theorem is important. So how, how did you decide which ones to give money to? And Oh, I go to Title I schools where there's a lot of impoverished people. And you can tell by uh, how many are in free, free and reduced lunch. And so uh, you'll find them. There's poor schools. We go to them and we have a commitment the orthodontia, et cetera, and that they get to go to the same summer camp that the, the one down here gets to go to, the Montecito Unions of the World, wealthier kids. And we'd start with ropes courses. Like, for an example, I remember going to school. I hated every human being in that school the first day of school. But if you do a ropes course, that means they do something collectively. It'll help integrate you into the school. It's going through something challenging. Yeah. What are other counterintuitive pieces about wealthy people? I think there's a lot of inherited wealth that uh, they think they deserve it. My favorite is, I work so hard for my inheritance. <laughs> they, they're, they're politically conservative. I just That really irritates me. How you could be conservative going down the birth canal and inheriting all that money? What's the difference between an inherited wealth and a welfare chiseler? I don't get the difference. Wealth of a chiseler? I remember sitting with this guy. He was a very wealthy man. inherited a bunch of money. And he was talking about the welfare chiselers. And I kept thinking, well, you inherited money. What's the difference between you and a welfare person? And I found my worst landlords at Kinko's were children of wealthy people inherited wealth. Because I kind of think if you inherit money, it's how much you lose, not how much you make. I find them very defensive people. How do you spend your days? I go to breakfast with my friends. I have a workout at 10 o'clock. I go to lunch. Maybe take a nap in the afternoon or watch TV. I'm really good at getting out of work. I don't have that much to do. I teach school at USC and Loyola. I've been teaching for 30 years, and I like teaching. It's like they come to my living room and I have a meal for the students, and we just visit. And I have a few canned lectures, or canned things I want to get across. Everything I teach is how to ask a question. And life's about questions, not the answers. So they go around the room and everybody, I give them a newspaper article. Usually. Things in the newspaper or the news are ambiguous situations. And so they ask questions. Sort of like an editorial board. You know, when the editor goes to the newspaper people, like, well, this event happened, 9-11. How would you cover it? And so everybody gives their idea of what article they would write about 9-11. That's sort of how I do it. 
how come you hire apprentices? Why? He's a great guy. No, no. <laughs> no, I, no, I love it because I, I think it's really interesting of an approach. I don't see a lot of people doing it. But they should. I've been very lucky and blessed with them. You've taught thousands, tens of thousands of students. Like, what do you hope they take away from you? It's really simple. Save your money. <laughs> I mean, what a complicated thing. If you have money in the checkbook, all boats float on a rising tide. And uh, I get so many stupid business plans. And they never ask for enough money. And I know damn well it's going to cost more. And every damn construction project you ever do is 50% longer and it's 50% more expensive. Just remember that. Ask for more money than you need in a business plan. And you're more credible if you do that. I guess a final question for me. What makes a great life? Oh, family. I think family and children. You know what success is? Success is when your children want to be with you when they're adults. That's success. How many people could have all that bullshit and their kids don't come home for the holidays? Come on. And all these extra rooms are there just empty. The most cool thing I've ever been called in my entire life is dad. Thank you, Paul. That was great. That is a wrap. I hope you loved this episode as much as we did making it for you. Go read Paul's memoir, which is titled Copy This on Amazon. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go copy some documents together. <laughs> Before you go, tweet at me, TikTok, Instagram, at Noah Kagan. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Before you go, make sure to go subscribe to my newsletter. That is okdork.com. I send an exclusive email each and every week with juicy content to help you on your business journey. Finally, a couple of shout outs to the amazing team who helps make this happen. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for making these podcasts sound so damn good. It's just funny your URL podcast tech. Sounds so 90s. They get a Mitchell, Jeremy, George, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen from the Dork team for everything y'all do. And a special shout out to the finance team over at AppSumo. Thank you for paying our partners on time. Thank you for paying our teammates on time, helping us save money and make some money. Y'all are amazing. Shout out to Kevin, Kevin, Peter, and Megan. Have a joyful day. It's 5.56 a.m. What's your favorite time of the day? Oh.